0: Hello, Cedarville family. Welcome to the Cedarville Stories podcast. Making an arrest in the middle of a bar fight, running into a burning building, chasing down a guy with a gun. Sure, Steve Norris is heroic, but would he offer his own blood to arrest COVID-19? The answer, yes. He is a 2001 Criminal Justice alumnus who just earned his Master of Ministry degree and he was diagnosed with COVID-19 this March. After he recovered, he donated coronavirus convalescent plasma to help combat the sickness. For him, contributing plasma to help those most impacted by this deadly pandemic also comes from his desire to reflect the love that Jesus has for him by sharing, even in a small way, that love with others. Listen to how Steve's faith informs his public service with your host, Mark Weinstein.
1: Welcome back to the Cedarville Stories podcast. I'm Mark Weinstein, your host. Joining me today on the podcast is Steve Norris. He's a 2001 graduate of Cedarville University. He did his undergraduate studies in criminal justice. Just this May, he earned his Master of Ministry from Cedarville. We'll get into that in a little bit later. Uh, Professionally, he's a Oakwood police officer, firefighter, and EMT. So before I get into the podcast, Steve, thanks for your service to your community. Today, I wanna talk about a story that involves uh, Steve being tested positive for COVID 19 in March and how he used this situation for ministry purposes. So, welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you. I'm really interested in a little bit of background about you. So, uh, you're in uh, law enforcement. Where did that love for law enforcement, fire, fighting, EMT come from?
2: So, I started out, it wasn't something I grew up with. I actually uh, came to Cedarville as a music major. Wow. So um, I had no idea as an 18-year-old, you know, cocky little kid. I thought, hey, uh, I can sing and go make some CDs and go do concerts and make lots and lots of money. (laughs) And then I came to Cedarville, who has a very, very good music program, and very quickly realized I was way out of my league. I had no idea about even the basics of a lot of the music theory and fundamentals and things like that. That lasted for an entire quarter. And then I switched to being undeclared. I went undeclared almost uh, two total years. And then I think my frustrated advisor was finally just like, you know what, come to career services, we'll take you through some of these tests and aptitude tests and things like that. And We'll see if we can land on a major for you. Something is just to give you some direction. So I went in, I took some tests and it dropped a list of things that I might be good at. And it had a bunch of adrenaline seeking type careers like a tank commander, (laughs) skydiving instructor, whitewater rafting instructor. And in the middle of this list was police officer. And I was like, hmm. Well, I like to drive fast. I've grown up shooting guns, so let's give that one a shot. And that was pretty much how much prayerful consideration went into my major. So I was like, eh, I'll take criminal justice. And from day one, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Actually, when I graduated in 2001, the quarter before I graduated, I actually went to the police academy. I was hired by um, a local agency near Dayton. And they sent me to the police academy. And so my final quarter, because at that time we were on the quarter system, my final quarter, I would go to the police academy um, at the Ohio State Patrol Academy in Columbus. And I would go there from Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends, I would come home and I would do my coursework to finish up my senior year. And so I graduated from Cedarville, I don't know, June 3rd or something like that. And then I graduated from the police academy June 6th-ish. And
1: then immediately jumped right into my career. So, you've been in this role for 19 years. That's a long time. What are some of the challenges that you faced during your career? Um, all
2: kinds. I mean, when I first got hired, I actually went to that department and I was there for 10 years. And then about nine years ago, I moved over to where I am now. And so, at that time, I had to go to the Fire Academy and to EMT school. And so, I've been in my current place for nine years. But I mean, the challenges are myriad challenges. Uh, when you think about, especially a, um, a kid growing up, I'd say it kind of sheltered, you know, when you grow up in a Christian home and a Christian school, and then I go into this world that's full of violence and ugliness and just the, the worst of humanity at times. That was kind of a culture shock. My first arrest was in the middle of a bar fight in a biker bar. And so that's about as far from, you know, the, the Cedarville environs as you could imagine. So just, you know, dealing with that, dealing with death, um, figuring out how to deal with death and the ugliness that surrounds violent death or that surrounds, you know, sicknesses and death notifications. And, you know, how do you deal with people in the middle of their absolute worst time in their lives while you have to think? Logically, you have to think clearly and then you have to know the law. And so it can be very, very complicated at times to maintain calm, to maintain a disciplined approach, to be able to effectively deal with the situation um, when your emotions you know, have a tendency to get
1: carried away with you as well. Yeah, you're in a very difficult situation, probably on a daily basis because of your job. But I've also heard you say that the love that you have and the excitement you had, when you first started 19 years ago, is still with you today. How does that love and interest still stay with you with such a long history?
2: I think it's just a matter of perspective, a matter of staying grounded in God's word. It's a matter of my wife is a a big, big part of that. There's a very high divorce rate in my field just because of the stressors. And uh, one of the pieces of advice that I got when I was a brand new police officer was to make sure your wife is involved. Uh, Make sure that when you come home, maybe you don't tell her the nitty gritty details, but you say, hey, I had a really hard day at work today and and let them into your world. And so my wife has very much been a part of my support throughout uh, a lot of my back all of my career, especially as I moved into. I've done a lot of specialty things, been able to be a part of all kinds of stuff. And so if I would get called out in the middle of the night with a family, if your wife is not. Uh, supportive of that, then you know, it makes it much more difficult. But I, th- I think the biggest part of it though is just flat out when, when you love what you do, it doesn't become really it doesn't feel like a job. And so you just get up and you do it and, and you enjoy it. And it's just something new every day. So I don't know if there's a specific thing that I could point to that says, hey, this is why I still love what I do, other than the fact that
1: it's kind of what God created me to do. So I wasn't gonna ask you this question. But uh, some words you said made me uh, think about uh, last year in Dayton, we had a uh, officer killed in the line of duty. I I presume that you were probably at the uh, University of Dayton Arena for that ceremony. What's it like for a police officer to be in that situation where you're honoring a fallen hero? It's sobering. It's a good reminder um, to
2: stay Current with my physical fitness, with my tactics to make sure that I'm at the top of my game. Because if not, I mean, that could be any of us at any given time. I know I work in a much, much quieter place than even I used to work. Uh, However, you just never know what the mindset of the people are that you, when you go to their house or when you make a traffic stop or whatever, whether it's that person that day. So, um, it's it's a sobering reminder, but it's also a reminder that in spite of a lot of the negative press you hear about police, uh, that the vast majority of people are still respectful. They still, I mean, it was just packed full of people who weren't police officers. And so that's a great reminder, too, that humanity is not always ugly. and And when you deal with that a lot of times, when that's the only perspective you see, then you can become jaded and think, oh, people just aren't aren't good. And that's not the
1: case. So I want to transition to more of the meat of the the conversation that is really dealing with COVID-19. But as a bridge to that uh, topic, I'm curious from your perspective as a police officer, with the stay-at-home orders that we've faced here in Ohio for quite some time, I've noticed people are becoming more unsettled. They're protesting at the statehouse, et cetera. Have you seen anything from a police perspective as a result of COVID-19 that's making your job even a little more difficult or challenging?
2: Not particularly. I mean, we don't have in the the little community, the smaller community where I work, we don't have too many places where people would have an organized protest of any kind. What we do see is people going to parks people you know, playing basketball in the, in the parks and things like that, and the parks are closed. And that's one of those things that it's, it's difficult to try to enforce anything because I understand it. They want to get out. They want to see their, their friends. They want to just, they're tired of being at home. And so I wouldn't say that I've seen anything specific. I have seen a, a great increase in the last few weeks of cars on the road when they first passed that order down, there was nobody out. And now people are just like, you know what, we're going to go do our thing. We'll try to take our precautions, but we're tired of being at home. Yeah.
1: yeah, That's what I'm seeing too. So thanks for that perspective. So as I said at the outset of the podcast uh, in March, you tested positive for COVID-19. What were some of the first thoughts that went through your mind when you learned of the positive test?
2: Well, the positive test took almost 12 days to get back. And so by the time that the test came back i was well i mean i was recovered i i felt perfectly fine and it was more of that i had had it and so then i could let my boss know and then they could take the proper steps i like i i knew at that point like what the parameters were like okay i had this now now here's what i need to do moving forward A- at that time my wife was still pretty sick and so Obviously, with me having the positive test, her presumptive, we just were able to presume that, yes, this is what you have to, because she was still waiting on her test to come back. And so it changed things. It, it was kind of a relief, you know, in a kind of a weird way to be like, okay, now we know what we're dealing with. And so we can move forward from here.
1: Did you ever have a thought or with you or with your wife, because she tested positive for COVID-19 as well, that like, this could be it. I'm in serious health trouble right now. Not for me. For me,
2: the, the symptoms were really just kind of flu-like. In fact, I've had worse, the, the actual flu worse than COVID affected me. So for me, it really wasn't, I mean, I felt bad, but it wasn't a huge medical issue. Uh, my wife, though, on the other hand, had some real, real difficulties with her breathing, um, with some some other systemic issues. And so there was a point that you know, I called an ambulance for her, which, as a public safety officer, that uh, that's one of the things that I really, really don't do unless it's an absolute emergency. Right. And and so, yeah, she was she was pretty sick. And so there were a couple times where I was like, man, I hope that uh, they're able to get this, this this stuff under control. And I don't think she was ever at that point that I thought, well, this might be it. Right. She was never put on a ventilator or anything like that. But um, hers, hers was definitely more serious than mine was.
1: How long was she in the hospital?
2: She had an overnight stay and then she had, I had to take her back one other time and she stayed and they were able to get her stabilized and then send her back home. So a couple of different times. So she didn't spend too long there. You know, that's good to hear. I was able to take care of her most of the time from home.
1: Yeah. and, And I would assume your, maybe your EMT training helped that, right? Absolutely. EMT training. And then my wife, uh,
2: she graduated with her nursing degree. And so she's, you know, even when she's sick, we're both able to work together to figure out like, hey, let's do this. And this is the the best way to care and, and things like that. But yeah, we, we have a, a definite medical background. I have a daughter who has cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. And so we have, we have quite a bit of um, medical history in our family. So we're pretty well versed. In, in sickness and injury and that kind of
1: thing. So you're very well versed in medical care. That's good with your all your background. But how did the Lord actually give you peace during all this ordeal with you and with your wife? I
2: wouldn't say that, I, that there was a time where I didn't have peace. I'm pretty pragmatic after 19 years of what I do in, in that there's some things you can control and some things you just can't. And if you can't control it, there's no sense worrying about it. So that doesn't mean there's not some concern there. But I knew that God has us in his hand. Um, there's nothing that has happened that he doesn't know of and then is not aware of. And so there's no sense in you know walking around wringing my hands and being super worried because in my career, worry gets in the way of being able to do what you need to do. And so sometimes that's a not a good thing. There have been times where I haven't been as worried as I should have been because, again, um, I'm used to kind of putting my feelings off to the side and just being able to handle the situation, whatever it may be. But this was one of those where um, I was just able to to love on her and care for her and know that God's plan is his plan. And we either, if we trust him in the good times, then how do we not trust him in the bad right. times? Too? They, they both come from the same place.
1: Yeah, that's a good point good observation. So, so you've recovered, your wife has recovered. Here's where there's really a cool twist in the story with you. So I know you're not a fan of needles. I've learned about that, but you in hearing some stories in the Dayton area, one about a, a a doctor, a well-known doctor who had contracted COVID-19, you decided that you should go to the community blood center in Dayton to donate plasma. Give me that story. Why why did you feel so compelled to do it? And what was that experience like? It kind of started,
2: the community blood center had no program in place. And my wife saw on Facebook that there was a doctor. We saw that Dr. Chandra Mm -hmm. was really sick and that they were talking about the convalescent plasma as potentially something that would be helpful to him. And so she showed it to me. And I knew that the pool of people was small. So I had been confirmed as a COVID patient. And then I was past the window that there needed to be, I think it was like a 14 day, you had to be recovered for 14 days. So I was, I was well past that. And I have good veins. (laughs) So I knew it was one of those things that it really wasn't a question about it. So she saw that and told me about it. And that night, I think it was a Saturday night, um, I was on the phone and texting and and sending messages back and forth for a number of hours with his team of friends and family and doctors and things like that, trying to figure out like, how am I going to get in and get this done? So one of the interesting things that we found out is that my blood type is, I'm a universal donor. However, plasma is different. So I wasn't aware of that. So I just figured I could donate plasma to anyone. But what we realized is that the, the plasma has to be a specific match. I actually talked to a hematologist and, and they had talked to their people. And so that was just a kind of an interesting part of this, a learning part. But through the course of that probably, so for about a week, I had been in contact with his people and then a couple of people from the community blood center. At one point I was gonna go down to Miami Valley and they were going to set up a room and I was gonna get tested because I had to have a negative test as well and then donate the plasma. And throughout the whole process, basically once they realized that my specific match was not compatible with his, I, I told him, I said, absolutely. I'm, if, if I'm willing to donate to him, why would I not be willing to donate to anyone? And so I was able to, at that point, that they called me and I went down it to a place down at Centerville. I got the negative test and then... I scheduled to donate on the Tuesday that I donated because that was on my way home from work. And so the way that I came into their program is that I didn't really even realize there was much of a program to begin with. I just knew that the community blood center was the place that was going to take my plasma to be able to use it however they needed to. And then I, I showed up and gave plasma and realized there was a program and that, you know, I may have been the. There were two, there were a couple of people who had donated that prior week, but it was kind of interesting that once I donated, uh, their media rep was there taking pictures and things like that. And I'm like, this is kind of interesting that I'm part of a program that I didn't really know of in the first place.
1: Yeah. That media rep, I believe you're talking about Mark Pompilio yes, from sir. the community blood center. He's a, he's a friend of mine. And, uh, from talking to him, I have kind of been led to believe that you're one of the first, if not the first in the Dayton area to donate plasma. If that is true, whether it is or not, actually, your thoughts of, of donating plasma, what, what are they as you know that you're helping somebody else? I mean, it's cool. I mean, I, w- I went and uh, donated again yesterday,
2: and then I found out I can do it every two weeks. And so it's it's one of those things that I don't know why it's never really kind of clicked with me to do it before, other than the fact that I really just don't like being stuck with needles. <laughs> But in my professional world, I'm willing to do anything for anyone. And so when you think of all, all three areas, you know, police, I have no issues. You know, if, if, if there's a guy with a gun going after him or if there's a fire, I have no issues at all going into the fire. And so I, it kind of struck me as like how stupid it is for me. That if I'm willing to do all of that, but then I'm not going to sit in a chair while somebody puts a tiny little, well, it's not a tiny little needle, but puts a little needle in me, like that didn't make sense. So I think it's really cool that they're
1: able to use what I went through to help other people. I'm curious to know from maybe what you're learning, what you learned from this situation or what you've learned from this situation and if there's any correlation in your mind you think of what jesus has done for us to on a much smaller scale what you're doing to help other people is there any correlation in your heart or mind it's hard to get away from
2: that blood you, you know there's there's that natural like for me when you think about jesus and what he did it's about his blood that covers us and so it's kind of an interesting piece that the blood of others is helpful in this time. And I know it's a really big stretch and it's only a tiny little connection there. And you have to be careful not to, to go down that road of, Hey, my blood is like Jesus. No. blood, But I, you know, we, we understand right. what, what that correlation is. And um, so that's, that's kind of a neat piece. Um, and then just the whole, you know, Jesus was about helping people and he met their needs where they were. Didn't matter who they were or what they had done. In fact, he he ministered a lot more to those that we may not be able to, we might not want to minister to than those who were, you know, the popular crowd. And so the plasma donation or blood donation or whatever, um, I don't know who it goes to, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I, I would hate to be the one who would sit there and be like, well, this can only go to this specific
1: demographic of people. Right. Yeah, that's right. So one, one interesting side note to all of your story with the COVID-19 is while you're dealing with this, you're also on the verge of graduating from Cedarville with a master of ministry degree. So in reality, you you officially graduate on May 2nd, I believe, at the virtual graduation date. And uh, right. so as a police officer going through COVID-19, what's the significance of a master of ministry degree for you now and going forward
2: ministry is about people in fact one of my professors in my masters class said it very clearly because i think in one of our forums we had talked about how there was this disconnect between academia and real world and he kind of gently reminded us that a lot of the academics are pastors and they're you know shepherds and things like that and i was like you know what you're right because i had in my mind, I had taken. There was a, a disconnect between those who who study and all of that. That they, they actually practice it, and that was such a disservice to those people that I had thought that way about. And so, th- this master's it is ultimately about being practical with the gifts that God has given me. It's a master of ministry, and so ministry is so many different forms. It takes so many different ways that you can. Step up and put things into practice, and that's I think more than anything what this was. Uh, I've asked, I've been asked the question several times. You know, what do you plan to do with right. it? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the end goal is. I don't know what God has for me. I just know very clearly that He said, "This is what you need to do. You need to get your masters. You need to get your masters of ministry specifically." I've been thinking about getting my masters for years and years and years and years. And it had never really solidified. It had never really just felt right, for lack of a better way to say it. But the Masters of Ministry, absolutely. I loved every second of it. And so it was very clear that was what God wanted me to have. As I look forward and as I you know went through this and suffered from and then recovered from COVID and ministered to my wife in this and then this resulting, the, the media attention right. and things like that, it just made it much easier to keep the focus away from me and point it toward Christ and point it toward others. Because ultimately, I mean, Christ was the master of ministry. And so if we're going to reflect him, then it's in love for
1: others. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, very good point. And uh, I look forward to, as best I can, to, to follow your career uh, in Oakwood or wherever you go to serve because I'm just getting to know you a little bit. I can see just how much you love people and you want to serve them because of what Christ has done in and through your life. So thank you for for that role. As I move toward my last question in the podcast, I, I asked this to everybody, especially during the COVID-19 time, but I'm interested in, in hearing from you uh, as you study God's word today, as you deal with COVID-19 and your role as a police officer today. What is the Lord teaching you right now? To be still and to be patient. Um, I am neither of
2: those. I'm not a patient person. Uh, I don't like to have others tell me what to do. I don't like to have things disrupted. Um, this, This has been really frustrating on a lot of different levels. The biggest thing is that for me through this, again, it's a perspective issue. So when I start to get frustrated about certain things, God gently reminds me that, but you have a stable job. You don't have to worry about where your next paycheck's coming from. Okay. Yep. You're right. Um, you have a, a beautiful home. You don't have to worry about where you're going to live. You don't have to worry about what you're going to eat. Um, you have recovered from COVID. You're not in the hospital on a ventilator. And so there are lots of little gentle reminders and sometimes not so gentle reminders that God's in control. I'm not. And so what I need to do is take a deep breath and hold my arms out and just say, okay, God, here I am. Use me how you will and take my own selfishness and ugliness and pride and everything else out of the picture so that I can be actually effectively used. I think it was really interesting that the Spectrum interview was, I, like you, liked that one the most, and that one very clearly, they didn't edit any of the uh, mentions of God or the masters or anything, any of that out. They kept that in, and it was a very clear picture of what God has done.
1: I think they did that because they could see what you were saying is genuine and real, and it's the fabric of your life and your story. And so I think that's why they kept it in, and I think it was uh, pertinent. So I really appreciate your perspective on COVID-19, how you strive to daily surrender yourself to what the Lord has for you, even though it can be hard to be told what to do. I, I understand that concept. But thanks for your service to the Oakwood community, for serving Jesus well, and for joining me today on the podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to Cedarville Stories podcast brought to you by Cedarville University. If you were encouraged by this conversation, like I was, please share this episode with a friend. If you know of an awesome Cedarville story, share it with us. We would love to showcase how God is at work in the Cedarville family. And be sure to come back next week when we'll hear another Cedarville story for God's glory.